0: On this day 47 years ago, 1975, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody is released to the world. It's from the album A Night of the Opera, written by lead singer, Freddie Mercury. It's a six-minute sweet mini-opera with several sections, ballad segment, operatic passage, a hard rock part, and a refractive coda. It's been described as one of the great rock songs of all time. Is it, Jenny?
1: It is. I love it. Always you, loved it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very cool.
2: What do you reckon, Phil? Be the only. I'm be the only human being that thinks this, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, it, I just missed the point. I'm not quite sure what they're trying to tell you, me here. I never miss- like. I just never like Queen. Sorry, it's just. <laughs> you, I don't know. You, maybe you, I was dropped uh, on my head as a killer. I don't know. You,
0: you missed the point of the, one of the great tracks in the world. Yeah, maybe. I mean, wow. Yeah. Sorry. You know? Sorry. What? What? What couldn't? What couldn't you? Jenny, what couldn't you like about that rock opera? Look, I don't know. It's, it, it, it encapsulates I'm, I'm life, a eh?
1: You're the only person yeah. in the world who doesn't like yeah. that song. No, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm prepared to stand up. You okay. don't like okay.
0: Bohemian Rhapsody. No. Who's with Phil? Yeah, hey, good. Me. please 2101. <laughs> I would love to find out one person who, I mean, I, whew, wow, uh, you don't like him? Rhapsody. There you go. Anyway, on this day, uh, in 1975, it is released to the world, and Phil O'Reilly, he didn't like it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> oh dear. Uh, Panel RNZ National Wallace, come on Wallace, you sad git! I'm putting the fishnets over my ample thighs and handing out the little lollies. There's nothing creepy about that. Halloween is a terrible. It's a commercial gimmick. Also, it's my birthday, and I hate sharing it with Halloween. Um, Wallace, lighten up! You have some fun. Life is too serious. Fun is important uh, to well-being. Lovely to have you company uh, this afternoon. Jenny Rainish and Phil O'Reilly joining me this afternoon. Now, Justice Minister Kiratapu Allen is seeking urgent advice on changing New Zealand's name suppression laws. She says they're not working for victims, especially for sexual violence and sexual offending. The Minister said on Q&A, quoting right now, there's a current requirement that automatic name suppression applies and then only once the case is completed and finalised can that victim therefore make an application at her own or his own cost to have that name suppression removed. Name suppression, interestingly, is an entirely local invention going back a century when William Massey was Prime Minister. The root of suppression can be traced back to a group of well-meaning probation officers who wanted to protect first-time offenders. With us to discuss is victims advocate Ruth Money. Kia ora, Ruth. The minister said, "Right now, it's not working for victims." In your view, is she right?
3: She's hundred and fifty percent right. It doesn't work for survivors of sexual violence, or actually any crime. Um, there's a number of reasons why. But also, we see, and you will have seen the kind of increase in famous or so-called famous New Zealanders applying for uh, name suppression. So it seems to be that um, if you've got some money and some resources behind you, the justice system treats you slightly differently.
0: And that was one of the issues, right, that often the public might see more powerful, influential and famous people getting name suppression and perhaps seen as inherently a bit unfair.
3: Absolutely. I've sat in courtrooms where uh, famous New Zealanders, name suppression because of the damage to their reputation, which is not at all um, consistent with the Crimes Act. The way that it's being applied right now is certainly not consistent with its intent when it passed through Parliament, but it's also not consistent and in fact prioritises the needs of the offenders rather than the needs of the victims, and that's exactly what the is talking about. Now,
0: I know that Jenny and Phil will have, uh, you know, reviews on this, Ruth, and want to ask some questions or comments, but, uh, I mean, uh, interestingly, other countries don't have name suppression, so what do they do? Because it's such a part of our um, judicial society here.
3: Yeah, it is. We're really different from a jurisdiction perspective. You know, we normally look to the UK, um, other countries. Kind of like-minded justice systems, um, and name suppression in New Zealand is prolific compared to anywhere else. Um, particularly for sexual violence, the other departments or the other parts of the world say we can find a jury of your peers and and run a trial that is fair. And so there isn't a name suppression issue there. Whereas in New Zealand, we take the view that you're innocent till proven guilty. Therefore, we're not allowed to uh, mention your name.
0: Isn't that a good thing?
3: A good thing that we suppress the offender's name, or the alleged offender's name? Uh, No, it's not, because if you're guilty and found guilty, then you're guilty, Um, and the victim wants to be able to talk about their journey, and by suppressing
1: particularly sexual violence, you are putting the shame on the victim.
0: All right. Okay, Jenny Rainish, your comments on this?
1: So, look, the way I understood it is that you are actually innocent until proven guilty. And when you're proven guilty, then your name is released. So, from my perspective, you know, one of the principles of the justice system is actually allowing you that opportunity. Um, Now, obviously, uh, my experience with the criminal justice system is pretty limited. But I do know that judges in that system who I speak to are people who only... uh, apply those sort of suppression orders in very specific circumstances that we don't have the information for. I know the laws have been tightened up around suppression, uh, and I know that the level of hardship to the individual whose name is going to be released has to be pretty high before it's released. So I'm not entirely sure what set the Minister off on this issue, but I would have liked to have seen specific examples that suddenly brought this uh, interview, and I'd be interested in the in the community, in the legal community's perspective, in the law society's view, uh, rather than rushing to judgment on this myself. Okay,
0: Ruth.
3: Yeah, you absolutely are innocent till proven guilty, as you should be. Um, but I think the counter to that is that in other jurisdictions, and even in New Zealand, where there isn't a name suppression or an interim name suppression before things go to trial, more survivors come forward uh, because they are not feeling like they're alone, and so they will disclose. And it is a tactic that the police use, that if the name is out there of the alleged offender or offending or where it happened, then more survivors um, feel confident enough to come forward and share their really gruelling experience. But I agree with you, you are absolutely innocent until proven guilty, and if you're found not guilty through that process, then, yes, there could be some reputational damage. Um, I think the other uh, thing, Jenny, is that... um, isn't always the case. So when the sentencing judge um, does decide on name suppression, at the end, you know, if someone is found guilty, um, if you are wealthy and are well resourced with a QC or a KC, as the case may be, you are more likely to be given name suppression because they can find those legal arguments that other people in their legal representation often doesn't.
2: All right. Uh, let's bring Phil O'Reilly in. Well, I certainly think that the justice system should should err on the side of openness. And if the minister wants to do a review, then I think that's, it's probably sensible to do so. I would just remove the word urgent because this screams out for a very, very considered way forward, not, not to try to, d- to diminish the, uh, the issue of the victims here. The, the, I was interested in reading the history of this as you, as you sent it to us to prepare because it was actually not about – sexual violence at that time. The, the whole thing was put in place because of young people who mm. might, be, might be unfairly convicted or might be convicted of one thing, and it would stay with them forever. And of course, in New Zealand's justice system, we've resolved that not through name suppression, but actually by things like diversion, keeping them right out of the justice system, which is a very good idea, which which says to me that we need to be very considered about this. and We need to think quite carefully about a way forward rather than having some sort of urgent thing driven by one or two Particular cases and letting all those uh, community voices actually actually play out well. So I think a review is good, but I think the idea of have, you know doing it in a few weeks and you know something on a minister's desk I think risks uh, making it right. worse the other way. Yeah, Ruth.
3: Oh, you're absolutely right. I don't disagree with that. However, I would say that there have been a number of people across lots of sectors within the. Um, Kind of law um, survivor advocacy space um, survivors themselves who have already submitted on this issue for years. So, while I absolutely don't want a review that's done in haste, um, it wouldn't take long for the Ministry of Justice or the advisors to um, Minister Allen to pull together some really well rounded and well prepared documents because they've already been prepared for years, you know.
0: yeah. Okay. Now, uh, before we go, Ruth, um, uh, can I just ask you whether or not name suppression is truly workable in the age of social media? We know, we all know examples. One comes to mind particularly where the name was released online internationally. Uh, and, in fact, uh, if you Googled that name, it would just automatically fill the name in for you. Yeah,
3: that's right. I mean, a number of our laws, Harmful Digital Communications Act, is the same, actually, is that, you know, um, technology is moving at such a vast pace that our our laws aren't, and certainly with social media, um, international access to information, the name suppression laws in New Zealand aren't kind of standing up and um, yeah, do, doing the job that they used to do. I guess is uh, is a better way of putting it.
0: All right, very good. Thanks, for being with us, this is victims' advocate, Ruth Manikyota. Ruth, it's fifteen away from a five. Um, by the way. Uh, Yes, uh, it seems to be that there's a little bit of a subculture going on here, and that is um, uh, Phil O'Reilly's supporters who also hate Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, I am with Phil on Rhapsody. It is terrible. Scaramouche, come on. <laughs> Scaramouche, uh, can you do the fandango? Oh, if thank, he wants to get it thank correct, you, Jenny. That's right. Thanks for that. It, no yeah. Uh, can't stand Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe too many school choir versions of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 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 um, although, says, Scott says, I really do hope, I am praying that Phil tonight has a bunch of mini Freddie Mercury looking like he's not going to talk tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing off- the fishnets Offering a full rendition of Bohemian Rhapsody As his trick for offering a slice of cucumber or kale at the door That would be true justice Good on you. That's, No, that's justice True justice uh, 14 to 5, the panel, RNZ uh, National The next story is sure to spark a few debates at home Researchers at AUT have conducted uh, studies to definitely, definitively answer Who, on average, does more around the house Men, woman, mum or dad. They found that New Zealand is no different from the rest of the world, with women bearing the brunt of household tasks and childcare. The research also showed that men tended to overestimate how much they contributed around the home. AUT professor of economics and one of the co authors of the study is Gail uh, Gail Pacheco. Gail Kiora. Welcome to the programme. Uh kia ora. really interested. I'm racking my brains to think I if I'm in this category or not because I try my damnedest at home uh, and I think I'm doing okay but I don't actually know (laughs) if I am um, uh, pulling my entire weight when it comes to the entirety of housework. How did you conduct this research?
4: So what we did was we used uh, growing up in New Zealand birth cohort data which asked mums and dads about um, their activities in the household and this is Focus particularly on childcare activities, the day to day care and involvement with their children. And so, this is quite detailed and rich data because in the past, most research hasn't had this kind of data to understand what the involvement of fathers and mothers are in the household. It just, yeah. just lies on proxies like how much annual leave do they take. If they took more annual leave, they must be more involved. And they haven't um, had such nice data to work with.
0: So, um, in terms of the findings, you saw some interesting things around how men perceive their uh, house life and their work.
4: Yeah, so we found that fathers, although they were less involved in the day-to-day care of their child compared to the mothers, um, they thought the distribution of child... They were much more likely to think that distribution was fair. So about 71% of fathers thought the current distribution of uh, responsibilities was fair, and it was
0: 56% of mothers who thought the distribution was fair. Interesting. So 71% of men, Jenny, thought it was fair as opposed to just over half of women. Well, well, well. Look, well, well, well.
1: It's, it's not a shocking result, I'd have to say. <laughs> you
0: know, there was a book. Explain.
1: Written in the 70s called The Third Shift that talked about women's responsibilities in the house that meant there was a third shift in their lives. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's inequitable it's slightly unequal. But I, I would perceive that it's getting better in, in the lives of the people we see. Dads are considerably more involved than dads were when I was growing up. So it, it feels to me like it's moving in the right direction. Professor
0: Pateko?
4: Yeah, it might be. We can't tell in this study whether uh, how much it's changing over mm. time. Um, uh, and many fathers actually say that they would like to take more leave so what we find also on on the paternity leave front is they take two weeks or less of paternity leave most fathers in New Zealand but most of them actually say they would have liked to take more if it was not for work oh, okay. or financial reasons
0: very, very interesting. Or this interesting too that um, there are some uh, ethnic differences in involvement. Maori and Pacifica dads more likely to be involved in day-to-day care. Pacifica dads, in particular, did more of that quality care, like you know, you're playing games, telling stories, reading books.
4: Yes, definitely. Pacifica were well, much more likely to what we deemed as kind of quality activities, but not just looking after your child being in charge of the day-to-day care but actually doing uh, engaging activities like reading books with your kids
0: all right, Phil O'Reilly, when's the last time, Phil, that you picked up a vacuum cleaner and uh, vacuumed the lounge?
2: Well, I see – I'm just going to dodge slightly on this one, Wallace, because I see it's about childcare. Uh, and, <laughs> and luckily, yeah. for the purposes of this segment, I don't have any children. So, uh, yes, I do do some of the vacuuming and so on and so on. So on but I'm just on a hiding to nothing on that, particularly from my wife, obviously. So, But it was interesting, I think, the, the Pacific piece – is interesting because we, you only need to just see how much families are involved in Pacific communities to see that that would be part of it, whereas I think, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, the more the nuclear family, the kind of the, the white middle class stuff is much more about male and female and, and you know, maybe men doing their stuff and women doing their stuff. So, but I, I agree. I think this is starting to change. Certainly my father was, you know, much less involved in my upbringing than any of the uh, any of the of the of the men I see out there today, and my, my father was pretty involved with me, I must say. So good for him. But I'm okay. not, not suggesting it's bad. But I think this is going to get better. But it's a, it's not just about focusing on that childcare at home piece. It's about focusing on the whole of the life. What are companies doing about this? You know what what's happening in terms of healthcare. Right. What's happening in terms of of uh, making sure that the right skills are in the house. So what's happening from, about working from home. All of those things will play out and help here. So, you know, I think it's an important conversation to have.
4: Yeah, I I agree, too. I think there's a a number of uh, factors here. It's not just um, the division within the household. And like we found in our study, you know, fathers were wanting to take more leave. Uh, They were wanting to be uh, more involved in the day-to-day care of their children uh, when they're young. So there's a number of policy areas, too, that... um, could warrant looking at because New New Zealand sticks out in some of the policy spaces with regard to things like daddy leave or uh, the replacement rate for um, parental leave and
0: things like that. Very good to have you on, Professor Pateco Kiora, Thank you for your time. That is the yeah. Professor of Economics at AUT, Gail Paterko, on uh, this really interesting research. Um, now, uh, 825, finally, on the panel with Jenny Rainish and Phil O'Reilly. After months of speculation and back-and-forth negotiations, Elon Musk finally finalised a deal to buy. Twitter. He walked to that um, uh, lobby, didn't he, with a kitchen sink, very very strange but the question will now uh, come to what sort of Twitter will Twitter be under Elon Musk and with us to discuss is tech commentator Paul Spain. Paul, kia ora. welcome to the programme. Kia ora Wallace. Okay so he wants it to be like your public forum, the Grecian public space where you can say within moderation anything you jolly well want does this worry you?
5: Uh, look i 'm very curious as to as to how it plays out. Mm. Um, the idea that he's uh, floated around having a content moderation uh, council that makes some some sense to me. Um, I would think they need to lean towards also uh, you know verifying that accounts are actually owned by individuals and you know the, the more transparency you have around the people that are posting uh, the content then then hopefully the 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 less uh, rubbish that you uh, that you get becomes a little bit more like what people are willing to say in the real world.
0: Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's, he, he said the reason I quiet Twitter is because it's important to the future of civilization to have this town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated uh, without resorting to violence. So he's... He doesn't want it to be a left-right-wing echo chamber. There are real concerns, uh, Paul, that some of the fringe voices who do espouse pretty intense views are getting back on. There's a particular British Nationalist Party, for example, or forum that's back on.
5: Yeah. Look, uh, from from what he's said at this stage, he's he's not pushing the reinstatement of any accounts until this moderation council comes on on board. So any well, what I've read anyway is that uh, any accounts that have been re- reinstated over um, recent days are, are actually not you know not of his doing. That's just the, the you know ongoing continuous. Yeah. Um, of business so yeah how how that actually you know plays out once they've put that in place I think is as is- is going to be the telling point, and of course, um, you know, part of the question is around um, some of the stuff that uh, um, Musk is tweeting, and there's, there's been some news today yes. saying that he's been pushing, uh, you know, an unfounded conspiracy theory um, about the Paul Pelosi uh, attack. And so, uh, look, yeah, he's going he's going to have to think uh, before he tweets. Maybe a little bit more carefully huh. uh, now he's in that box seat.
0: Now, Jenny, what about you? Where do you stand with regards to Twitter uh, and the wider um, communication ecosystem?
1: Look, I mean, I think, you know, he's obviously done this for reasons he thinks are about sort of equity and democracy. But, you know, again, it'll either succeed or it won't, like all of the channels that we've come and, you know, we've seen come and gone. I mean, Bebo and MySpace. Bebo! Uh, remember Bebo and MySpace? And, you know, and oh. to some extent, you know, Facebook have all gone MySpace. to a greater or lesser degree through a cycle. It's like the rise and fall of sort of communications channels. Uh, and, you know, his might be on the rise or may in fact be on the fall. I mean, the... the Friendster. Yeah. Friendster, I forgot Friendster. You know, the number of people in New Zealand who actually are active on Twitter is pretty low as far as as I understand it. That's
0: quite true, isn't it, Paul? It's not not the huge um, forum it's made out to be, perhaps. No, I mean, you know, you do
5: have a a few hundred million users, but often people just are sort of sitting there and consuming content. Rather than than actually posting, and I you know I think that's the part maybe where uh, Musk feels if he can if he can turn that around, then it becomes a viable business. And I see he's he's tweeted today about bringing uh, back Vine, uh, which was a, a sort of a, a you know short form uh, video, video app. Maybe it, maybe ahead of its time in some ways. Um, maybe uh, yeah maybe maybe that will come back. So Vine,
2: we will we'll, we'll see. Phil. Nobody wants a short video of me, I can assure you. Okay. Let, let's start with where Twitter is today. I mean, it's hardly a paragon of virtue, is it? I'm, I don't, I'm not on Twitter because <laughs> I consider Twitter to be why this. Not? It, why it's not? Because I consider it to be the sweaty armpit of social media, frankly. Oh, for God's sake. It's God. just not very nice. And if you want to be, I mean, I, I, I'll buy the idea that, that Mr. Musk says that he wants it to be like a town square because a town square actually is accountable. If somebody says something in a town square, I can see them. I know who they are, and I'm going to see them in the street tomorrow because it's a town square. And that's why a town square debate is largely a more moderate debate than what you see on social media and Twitter. So if he's going to get serious about that, I agree he should, you, you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't be able to have pseudonyms. You should have to say who you are. You should be, uh, it should be a real person saying something. And if, you, and okay. if you're then accountable, well, maybe maybe it'll work, but that's I don't a think fair, it will. That's a
0: fair point. Real name, uh, real photo, Paul.
5: Yeah, look, I'm I'm definitely a a fan of uh, of that that sort of approach. I'm not sure whether that's the direction that uh, <laughs> that that Twitter will uh, will take, and in fact. Um the suggestion that even the, the Twitter verified program that's, gonna be, that's been in place uh, is now going to cost uh, verified users uh, 20 US dollars a month.
0: All right, Paul, we've got to go, mate, but uh, thanks for that. Uh, bring back MySpace. That's my thoughts. Jenny, Phil, thanks. Back tomorrow.